1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We recently restarted this program from the very beginning and we're in volume two, chapters 41 through 51. We're going to be actually finishing this book today and then next week moving into the new book or the next one which is volume three chapters one through ten so i'd like to welcome all of you to our class today and invite you to join for meditation we start with a brief little meditation just to prepare the mind for the learning once we're done with meditation i'll be opening up to have you guys read any of the chapters that we're learning this week, starting with chapter 41, moving through 51. Then after the chapter is read, I will share some teachings on that particular chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. This program is designed for students to be learning through the book series and then coming to class in order to be able to get answers to the questions that they have. So once again, I'd like to welcome you and invite you to join for meditation. If you'd like to take a position either seated, lying or standing, this will be great to help you with learning and performing meditation through this online class where oftentimes walking meditation isn't really conducive to learning in the online class. What you'd like to do is get your lower body and hands and arms comfortable, close the eyes, and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation, and then I'll be back with some brief guidance to help us ease into meditation.
2: Arahang samasam moto makawa potang makawa nahang apiwa te So, what is the difference between Sāvaka-sāṅkho mi yeah, ha- ha- Napmoor okay. ja- has ha- Played- 하지- yeah. yeah. in a paco ARAH Ada to some mass put us up. Napmoor ARAH to TITI PISO MAHA KEWA ARAK HANG SAMA SAMU TO NANG SAMU NO SAKATO RUKA anutero bhurisā namasati Satatawa manusana bhoto bhagavatī
1: Okay, you'd like to be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just establishing your breath. Breathing in in out. Once the breath is established, fixate the mind on the sound of the breath. The sensation of air moving into the nose or the sound of the breath coming into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. With the mind fixated on the breath, whenever you observe that the mind is moved off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. No need to label the thought. Observe it or even try to figure out where it's coming from. Just wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work of focusing on the breath. Breathing in. in out.
2: Parakhang some Tipa, Putta sa napoerasa pa arato sama All
1: right, I'd like to welcome you all once again to our class, whether you joined us at the beginning or perhaps you joined us during our meditation. We're going to move into the Pali Canon in English study group where we're studying the words of the Buddha chapter by chapter in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. The way that we do this class is students will volunteer to read each chapter. Then I will share teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you might have. You can put those questions into Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom in the comment section. I'll be able to see those and answer your questions for you. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. And if there's people in Zoom who would like to read these chapters, you can just raise your hand electronically. I'll see that and be able to call on you to be able to read each individual chapter. So the first chapter is chapter 41. I see it looks like Khaldun would like to go ahead and read this one. So if you'd like to go ahead, Khaldun.
3: Not understanding and not penetrating the Four Noble Truths. Monks, it is because of not understanding and not penetrating the Four Noble Truths That you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth. What for? It is, monks, because of not understanding and not penetrating the noble truth of discontentness that you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth. It is because of not understanding and not penetrating the noble truth of the cause of discontentness. That you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth, it is because of not understanding and not penetrating the noble truth of the elimination of discontentness. That you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth, it is because of not understanding and not penetrating the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentness that you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth.
1: All right. Thank you, Cardon. Here, the Buddha is referencing and referring to the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is the very beginning teaching of the path to enlightenment. This is where you establish right view, understanding what is discontentedness, that this is the problem in the unenlightened mind understanding the cause of that problem which is craving desire attachment the mental longing and strong eagerness and the elimination which is the elimination of craving desire attachment and then the path leading to the elimination of discontentedness is the eightfold path these are four simple statements that the buddha shares in order to help you understand the problem in the unenlightened mind the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. This is where you can have the breakthrough to understanding what's causing discontentedness. Therefore, you can actually eliminate it. In the unenlightened state, when we're experiencing sadness or anger, frustration, irritation, all these other discontent feelings, we will typically blame somebody else or we will blame the situation. And therefore, we never solve the problem. It just keeps occurring over and over and over again, like a cycle. The mind is stuck in this constant cycle of discontentedness, this cycle of rebirth. So as long as one is not penetrating and understanding these four noble truths, then the cycle of discontentedness in the mind continues and there's going to be continuous rebirth because the cause of rebirth is craving, desire, attachment. This is the cause of discontentedness, but it's also the cause of rebirth. So as long as craving, desire, attachment is in the mind, there's going to be continuous rebirth. So therefore, in order to eliminate discontentedness and eliminate the cycle of rebirth, one would need to understand and penetrate the Four Noble Truths, deeply understanding and practicing these. And that's what's going to give you the insight and the wisdom of what's causing all the discontent feelings. And then you can actually make an end to this discontentedness. And you can actually get to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy. Therefore, there won't be any longer any discontentedness in the mind and there won't be any more rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. What questions you guys have on this chapter? You can put those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom electronically and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions from anyone, so we'll just move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 42. Would somebody like to read this chapter? Okay, on, go ahead.
3: The mind has attained the end of craving. Through the round of many verses I roam, without reward, without rest, seeking the house builder, painful is birth, again and again. House builder, you are seen. You will not build the house again. All your rafters broken, the rich poor dismantled, immersed in dismantling, the mind has attained to the end of craving.
1: Okay, thank you, Kaudon. So as I mentioned with the Four Noble Truths, the goal of this path to enlightenment and to eliminate discontentedness is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. By you eliminating craving, desire, attachment based on the teachings that the Buddha provided like breathing, mindfulness, meditation, generosity, and others, then you're no longer going to experience discontentedness and there'll no longer be another life. So here, this is a chapter from the Dhammapada. You can see that in the reference the Dhammapada is a scholarly work where people have summarized the teachings of the buddha some people consider these the words of the buddha but i don't necessarily consider them exactly the words of the buddha because these are people who are summarizing the teachings about 1200 years after his death but there is some insight here that you can glean and when you're reading from the Dhammapada it tends to be a little bit more poetic the way that you see here What the Buddha is saying, if this is indeed his words, which they're definitely accurate and they're very truthful, they're just more in a poetic format, is through the round of many rebirths, I roamed without reward, without rest, seeking the house builder. So roaming and wandering and continuously experiencing rebirth, it's without reward. It's without rest. One is just continuing to be reborn over and over and over again trying to be reborn or seeking this house builder the house is this physical body that is the body that we take up in this existence the builder is the mind as long as the mind has craving desire attachment it's going to keep building a house it's going to keep experiencing rebirth and taking up this existence either in the hell realm the animal realm, the afflicted spirits realm, the human realm, or the heavenly realm, there's going to be continuous rebirth or this new house is going to be built. And the Buddha is saying, yes, painful is birth again and again and again. It's very painful. If you know anything about childbirth, if you've ever witnessed a woman give childbirth, it's very painful for the woman to give birth. It's also very difficult for a child to come into the world and experience the certain grief and misery and sadness and despair. While we tend to focus on the positive sides of life, and that's important in order to get to enlightenment, there is an understanding of this aspect of life and existence, when you're in the unenlightened state, it can be quite miserable for the mind. And this is the built-in motivation that a human being has to be able to get to enlightenment. If everything in life was wonderful and perfect, you wouldn't have any motivation to train the mind and actually get to enlightenment but through experiencing painfulness of birth and the various painful feelings that we have in the unenlightened state throughout our life, this gives us the motivation to be able to learn and practice and actually get to enlightenment. House builder, you're seen. What the Buddha is saying here is, I see you mind. I see that you have craving, desire, attachment, and I see that this is what continues to lead to rebirth and building of this house or this existence you will not build a house again. He's basically saying, okay, I'm getting rid of craving, desire, attachment, or I have gotten rid of craving, desire, attachment, and this is the reason why you're no longer gonna build a house again. You silly mind, you know, you're not gonna be able to keep existing over and over and over again because I see the problem and now all the rafters in Ridgepole dismantled, immersed in dismantling, the mind has attained to the end of craving. By eliminating craving, desire, attachment, you've dismantled the house. You've dismantled the ability for this consciousness to keep continuing over and over. Because as long as there's craving and clinging in the mind, the mind is holding on to this world and there's things that the mind has not learned yet that is allowing it to continue to be reborn over and over and over again. The mind's going to continue to experience continuous rebirth because One hasn't learned what they need to learn in this life, but by understanding this process and the natural laws of existence, which you can independently verify for yourself, you can eliminate craving and you'll see that your discontentedness is gradually diminishing. And therefore, you'll also know that you're not going to experience rebirth because you've broken down all the causes and conditions that lead to rebirth. And this is something you're gonna learn in volume five, chapter 14, when we study dependent origination, where you'll see all the causes and conditions that lead to continuous rebirth and discontentedness. But having eliminated craving, one has eliminated the causes and conditions that lead to rebirth. Thus, if we're using the analogy of a house, all the rafters or in the ridge pole have been dismantled. The ridge pole is the pole across the top of the roof and the rafters are the things that are holding the tiles and the shingles in place. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm seeing a question here in YouTube. How long does it take to get on the first stage understanding the noble truths? Is rebirth cycle wrong? What is wrong with rebirth? Thank you, Thomas. All right, so let's answer the first couple of questions here and then he has some more after this. So how long does it take to get to the first stage of enlightenment? understanding the Four Noble Truths. So the amount of time that it takes for each person to get to enlightenment is gonna be different from one person to the next. There's not just one permanent answer because each individual who comes to the path to enlightenment, they're gonna have various levels of pollution in the mind. So each person who comes to the path, they're starting at a different place in terms of the pollution they have in their mind. And then each person's time, effort, energy, and dedication diligence that they have towards the path to enlightenment is going to be different. Some people ramp up their meditation practice and are able to deeply learn and understand the teachings of the Buddha in a relatively short period of time. Maybe they've cleared out certain things in their life. They don't have as many responsibilities and obligations. Other people aren't going to have as much time and ability to dedicate to learning and practicing. So You can't say that it takes X amount of years to get to the first stage of enlightenment because everybody's going to be a little bit different. But it's the Four Noble Truths, which is the first thing somebody needs to deeply understand and penetrate to be able to make any progress on the path to enlightenment at all. Is the cycle of rebirth wrong? I don't think about it as being wrong. It's just un- interesting right if you understand that being born into the world you're going to go through the constant miseries and grief and struggles and you're going to need to learn to read write and walk and talk and all these other things that's a lot of effort and a lot of energy that needs to be put into that and as the buddha says in the second chapter because i realize your questions are on the first chapter that we talked about today as he says in the second chapter chapter 42 painful is birth. It's very painful to be reborn into the world. So it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's uninteresting and it's complicated. It's causing continuous struggles and difficulties until one gets to enlightenment where now their life is no longer a struggle and difficult. So that answers all of those questions, Thomas. Now let's look at the next part. He says, is egoless part of Buddhist teachings? If a person is out of ego illusion, can be entitled as enlightenment. So as part of getting to enlightenment, one would need to dissolve the ego and eliminate the ego. That's a part of getting to enlightenment. But it's not the only part. So one would need to dissolve the ego and eliminate the ego. But there's other aspects of their practice as well. You wouldn't be able to only get to enlightenment by eliminating the ego. That's an important part of the path to enlightenment. But there's other aspects to getting to enlightenment as well. That's why there's an eight fold path there's eight individual steps and then there's ten fetters or ten individual pollutions two of those fetters relate to the ego that's personal existence view and conceit both of those relate to the ego so those need to be eliminated in order to get to enlightenment but then there's those other eight fetters as well and there's the eightfold path that is teaching you how to gradually build up your practice to be able to eliminate those ten fetters so thank you for your questions thomas and I don't see any questions in Facebook, and I don't see any questions in Zoom either. So we can go ahead and move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 43. I'll go ahead and read this one, and on if you would like to read the next one, you can go ahead and do that. In this fathomlong body, I say, friend, that by traveling, one cannot know, see, or reach that end of the world where one is not born. Does not grow old and die, does not pass away and get reborn. Yet I say that without having reached the end of the world, there is no making an end of discontentedness. It is in this fathom long body, endowed with perception and mind, that I proclaim the world, the origin of the world, the elimination of the world, and the way leading to the elimination of the world. So here the Buddha is once again referring to the Four Noble Truths. He's teaching about the Four Noble Truths in many different places of his teachings because it's such a primary, fundamental teaching that needs to be learned as a very beginning to the path to enlightenment. So as an individual teaching, you would need to be regularly teaching the Four Noble Truths. For me, in my life, in a month, I probably teach the Four Noble Truths anywhere from four to eight different times in just one month as I'm interacting with new students that are coming to the temple to learn or learning with me online, there's constant teaching of the Four Noble Truths because this is the very beginning. So at least four to eight times. And then even in conversations personally, there's additional times where I'm teaching the Four Noble Truths multiple times throughout the month. So as an individual is teaching the same things over and over and over again, it's helpful to kind of recast the Teachings of the Four Noble Truths in different ways. So, the Buddha here, when he's talking about, I proclaim the world, the origin of the world, the elimination of the world, and the way leading to the elimination of the world, what he's referring to is those Four Noble Truths, but he's talking about the cycle of rebirth. He's not talking about the world itself and eliminating earth or eliminating the universe or the galaxy or something like that. He actually left this as an undeclared teaching of whether the world is eternal or whether it's finite. Instead, what he's talking about is in terms of getting to continuous rebirth in this cycle of rebirth, he's taught the problem of discontentedness. He taught the cause of the problem he talked about and taught the elimination and the way leading to the elimination of how to get to the end of this continuous cycle of rebirth that's what he actually taught as part of the Four Noble truths and all the other teachings that he shares how to eliminate discontentedness and here he's saying by traveling one cannot know see or reach the end of the world where one is not born So what he means here about traveling is that oftentimes in the unenlightened mind, one is not content and peaceful where they're at. They always feel like they need to go somewhere else. They always feel like the grass is greener on the other side. They may feel like, you know, wherever they're at in home, that I need to go here and I need to go there and I need to go here. The Buddha calls this in his teachings, he calls it coming and going. He talks about how the unenlightened mind is constantly coming and going. But once the mind is enlightened, you'll still travel, but there won't be this coming and going, this dissatisfaction with where you're at. Where you're at in the world, either physically or mentally, the mind will always be satisfied. It'll be fulfilled. There won't be this constant coming and going. So by traveling, one cannot know, see, or reach the end of the world where one is not born. You can't travel around and find the end of the world where one does not grow old and die does not pass away and get reborn you can't find that through traveling around the end of the world isn't discoverable by just traveling instead it's understanding the four noble truths and practicing the four noble truths i say that without having reached the end of the world there is no making to an end of discontentedness so by training your mind on the eightfold path you eliminate craving desire attachment you've reached the point where you're no longer going to be reborn, and you're also not experiencing discontentedness any longer. That's what he's explaining to you here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. All right, you're welcome, Thomas. I see you saying thank you for answering your questions there. You're welcome. All right. I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter. So let's move to the next one. And it looked like, Kardon, you would like to read that one. So if you'd like to go ahead and read it, you can go for it.
3: The perfectly enlightened one's complexion is no longer pure and bright. The limbs are all flaccid and wrinkled. Then the venerable Ananda approached the perfectly enlightened one. Having approached and paid homage, respect, while messaging the perfectly enlightened one's limbs he said to him it's wonderful venerable sir it's amazing venerable sir the perfectly enlightened one's complexion is no longer pure and bright his limbs are all flaccid, soft and hanging loosely and wrinkled his body is stooped and some alteration is seen in his sense bases: in the eye sense base the ear sense base the nose sense base The tongue sense base, the body sense base. So it is Ananda. In youth, one is subject to aging. In health, one is subject to illness. While alive, one is subject to death. The complexion is no longer pure and bright. The limbs are all flaccid and wrinkled. The body is stooped, and some alteration is seen in the sense bases. In the eye sense base, the ear sense base, the nose sense-based, the tongue sense-based, the body sense-based. This is what the perfectly enlightened one said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this. Fire on you, red sheet aging. Aging which makes which makes beauty fade. So much has the charming puppet, being crushed beneath adv- advancing age. One who might live a hundred years also has death as destination. Death spares none along the way, but comes crushing everything.
1: All right. Thank you, Kaudon. So here what we're going to be getting into today is a few chapters that are leading up to the death of the Buddha. And here they're talking about the Buddha as he was old and he was aging. And here he's talking about his body essentially losing its youthful appearance and experiencing this fading away and alteration of the sense bases, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the bodily contact. These are the five sense bases, but there's actually six sense bases. There's the sixth one, which is the mind. Here what they're describing is they're describing that the Buddha, even as a Buddha, He's losing his functioning of his eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, right? These five sense bases. But notice that they're not talking about the mind. He's not losing capability of his mind. Oftentimes, we associate old age with a declining of these sense bases, but also including the mind we oftentimes think that getting old means that our mind is not as sharp anymore but this is actually untrue particularly for an enlightened being that you will experience the fading away of your eyes your ears your nose your tongue your body because this is what happens as we age we aren't able to see as well we aren't able to hear as well we don't necessarily smell things as well certain flavors we're not experiencing as deeply and even the bodily contact there's not as much sensitivity to the bodily contact as we age these things start to be altered or deteriorate over time but for somebody who's attained enlightenment and training their mind even in that first, second, third stage of enlightenment, but definitely the fourth stage as an otter hunt, you're not gonna experience the diminishing and degrading of the mind as part of aging because you've trained the mind really well, you don't have the pollution of mind. The thing that leads to the diminishing and degrading of the mind is pollution of the mind. And if we haven't done any training throughout our life, which the vast majority of the world hasn't, as we age, we will see a decline in our mental faculties. And this is why we tend to associate aging with a decline of mental faculties because the vast majority of the world doesn't understand enlightenment and doesn't understand how the mind functions and that the mind can actually be trained to maintain its crispness and its sharpness as we age. So, With the vast majority of the world not understanding the path to enlightenment and not training their mind then it's very understandable that we might think that as we age that this is going to lead to a declining of the faculties of the mind but in reality if somebody's actually trained the mind uprooted the pollution made their way close to enlightenment or is enlightened as they age they're not going to actually experience a declining of the mental faculties they'll just experience a declining of the physical body in these sense bases that they're talking about here. Here, the Buddha makes something very clear that we all can independently verify for ourselves is that death spares no one. Every single one of us needs to die. There's no way around that. This is the universal truth of impermanence. Whatever arises, it's going to change and it's going to fade away. But by the time we get to death, if the mind is craving and clinging and holding on, having central desire, it's going to be a very painful death. It's going to be very hard for somebody to die and experience death because the mind is holding on to this world so tightly. But if you train your mind to let go and actually get to enlightenment, then as there's death, you're not going to be having painful feelings and discontent because of your own death. So knowing that there is going to be death, one of the best things you can do is prepare the mind by getting to enlightenment in this life then experience the rest of this life in this peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy And when it's time for death you won't experience the misery and despair and grief of your own death or the death of the people around you what questions do you guys have on this chapter let's see uh, we don't have any questions in facebook and let's see what we have in youtube here question is do we have to encounter the same people again and again in rebirth namaste so who we encounter in our future lives is based on our own decisions everything that we experience is based on our own decisions if you are in this life and you have excellent relationships with the people around you and you and or those people are reborn into a future life there's the potential that you guys will spend time with each other in future lives but you're not necessarily going to know that to be the case so you're not required to spend time with certain people in future lives Everything that you experience is based on your own decisions. So if you're around certain people who you find it challenging and difficult to spend time with, you can choose to move on from those relationships and no longer spend time with them. It's not going to solve your discontentedness by moving on in a relationship. If there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, you're going to still need to eliminate that in order to get to peacefulness and joy. But with that said, there are certain relationships that you might choose to move on from. From as you make your way to enlightenment. But whether you actually spend time with people in future lives is based on your own decisions. But oftentimes when we're experiencing one life and there's excellent relationships and healthy relationships, we tend to be reborn in future lives and those same people tend to be around us, but not necessarily in the same role. If you're husband and wife in one life, you might be brothers and sisters in another life or something along those lines or friends or something like that. All right, so I'm not seeing any more questions in Facebook or YouTube. I don't see any in Zoom either. So we'll just go ahead and move on to the next chapter. If there's someone who would like to read this, you're welcome to raise your hand. This is chapter 45, the Tathagata's final passing. Kaldon, would you like to read this one? Yes, sure. Okay, go ahead.
3: The Tathagata's final passing. Monks. For this reason, those matters which I have discovered and proclaimed should be thoroughly learned by you, practiced, developed, and cultivated so that this holy life may endure for a long time, that it may be for the benefit and peacefulness of the multitude, many people, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit and peacefulness of heavenly beings and humans. And what are those matters? They are the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four bases of mental power, the five spiritual faculties, the five mental powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, the Noble Eightfold Path. And now, monks, I declare to you all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Strive on the Tassagata's final passing will not be long delayed. Three months from now, the Tassagata will take his final Nibbana, final enlightenment. Right by May, in years, my life spans determined. Now I go from you, having made myself my refugee. Monks, be untiring, mindful, disciplined, guarding your minds with well collected thought. He, who tirelessly keeps to the guidance and teachings, leaving bears behind, will put an end to sorrow and despair.
1: All right. Thank you, kaudon So here, let's go through this. The first thing that I'll share is this is a teaching where the Buddha is nearing his death. Three months before his death, he knew that he was going to die. That's how enlightened he was, that he knew certain things that were going to happen before they happened. This is one of the qualities that some enlightened beings experience is having omniscience and be able to know the future before it actually occurs. So the Buddha knew three months before he died that he was actually going to die. This can help to put the myth to rest that some people say that the Buddha died from eating a poisonous sandwich. This is not true. If you see his teachings you can see why he died and how he died and here he's actually describing that he knew he was going to die three months before he wouldn't have eaten a poisonous sandwich that's like committing suicide an enlightened being is not going to commit suicide he died from old age essentially is what he died from and here he's giving people the three months heads up, which is very wise of a Buddha, because there's going to be certain people who are learning with a Buddha who are enlightened, and there's going to be some who aren't enlightened. And the ones who aren't enlightened, they may have an attachment to him as their teacher, and they would need help to kind of overcome that attachment and let it go. So by giving them a three months heads up, it allows them to ask any final questions and kind of gradually let go of any kind of attachment that they might have. And here he's sharing the teaching of Impermanence. He's saying all conditioned things are of a nature to decay he's talking about his own body. Even a Buddha is subject to the natural laws and the universal truth of impermanence. So this body is of a nature to decay. He's going to die. What arises is going to change and fade away. Because he was born, he needed to die. And he's encouraging people to strive on untiringly because that's what's actually going to lead to your enlightenment. If you're dedicated, if you're diligent, if you're determined to progress on this path to enlightenment, while there might be struggles and difficulties along the way, if you reach out to your teacher and other members of the community, you can get help to progress along this path and you can see that you can overcome those struggles. The only reason why the mind is struggling is because of lack of wisdom. So by facing the struggle, striving on untiringly, not being complacent, one can then acquire the wisdom that they need to overcome those struggles. And Here you can also see where the Buddha describes his death as final Nibbana or final enlightenment. Once somebody's enlightened, we don't say that they've died because once you attain enlightenment, you'll no longer experience death ever again. Instead, you're attaining final enlightenment or final nibbana. The reason why we call it this is that during your lifetime, you can get to enlightenment where the mind no longer experiences any mental anguish, where there's no discontent feelings, that the mind is peaceful and joyful for the rest of the life. But you're still going to experience physical pain. As an enlightened being you need that physical pain and as an unenlightened being you need the physical pain too but as an unenlightened being you're going to relate to this physical pain very differently than you do in the enlightened mental state When there's physical pain in the unenlightened state, the mind is still craving permanent comfort. So therefore, not only is there the physical pain, but there's the mental anguish that goes along with it, oftentimes intensifying the pain. So if you stumped your toe, for example, you will feel that physical pain, but then you might get upset and angry and frustrated. You might have some profanity, you might start blaming people for putting things in a certain place. This is what tends to happen in the unenlightened state. But in the enlightened state, you might stump your toe, but you'll know that that sensation is impermanent and you won't have the disgruntledness, the anger, the frustration, the mental anguish associated with it. So the physical pain is actually a lot less in the enlightened mental state, but you still need physical pain because that's what's going to tell you to take some action. So if as an enlightened being, you were standing close to a fire and you felt the heat of the fire you would need to know, like, ah, I'm standing too close to the fire, I need to move away. So if you were an enlightened being standing close to a fire and you didn't feel that physical pain, you wouldn't know to move away and it would damage the body. So in the enlightened mental state, you're still going to experience some physical pain, but it's going to be very diminished and very minimal compared to what you experience in the unenlightened state, because there's not the mental anguish to go along with it. So because of that physical pain, you can't eliminate 100% of what we might call suffering in this life. You can eliminate discontentedness of mind and the mental anguish, but you're still gonna experience some physical pain in the body, even though it's diminished. But at the time that an enlightened being no longer exists in terms of the end of this life, There's what's called final nibbana or final enlightenment, where the body and the mind are separated. And now you've experienced final enlightenment. You won't experience even physical pain anymore because you're no longer in existence. The mind and the body are no longer attached to each other. You can eliminate all your other cravings desires attachments but the mind itself and the body are still connected together you can't separate those as long as there's life so when an enlightened being dies this is called final enlightenment or final nibbana because you'll no longer experience any physical pain because the body and mind is actually separated here the buddha at the very beginning of this teaching talks about how he suggests and encourages his students to continue to learn and practice and develop and cultivate their mind using the teachings that he shared because this is going to be beneficial to the peacefulness of many people and that he has done that throughout his life because when he attained enlightenment at the age of 35 he could have very easily went back to the royal family and just enjoyed his enlightened mind all to himself but instead he had such compassion for the world, compassion is the concern for the misfortune of others, he decided to dedicate the rest of his life, 45 years, when he dies at the age of 80, those 45 years of the remaining time of his life was dedicated to helping others experience this peacefulness, this joy in the mind, out of compassion for the world. What compassion is, is the concern for the misfortune of others. So he had this concern, he didn't have this worry, he didn't have anxiety. He didn't have craving, desire, attachment, longing, and yearning to help others. But he had this compassion. He had this concern for the misfortune of others. So he gradually, slowly, but surely shared his teachings into the world for the benefit and peacefulness of heavenly beings and human beings. Because heavenly beings and human beings can get to enlightenment. In the heavenly realm, these beings tend to be fairly complacent because they're only experiencing pleasant feelings. They don't have those painful feelings, so they tend to lack motivation and encouragement to actually get to enlightenment. But here in the human realm, we experience Those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. So we tend to have built-in motivation because we don't like the sadness. We don't like the anger, the frustration, the irritation, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the loneliness, the boredom, and all these other discontent feelings. So that's like built-in motivation that encourages us along the path to dedicate ourselves to getting to enlightenment. So he encourages his students to continue to learn, practice, and develop these teachings and also share the teachings so that others can benefit and do that out of compassion for the world, not out of expectation of wanting something from your students, but out of this concern for their misfortune. And then he goes into sharing what are the core and central teachings that he sees as being needed in order to get to enlightenment, because there's a whole plethora of teachings that need to be shared and understood and practiced in order to get to enlightenment. But here, the Buddha's boiling it down to a handful of teachings of what really needs to be focused on. And he talks about the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four mental powers, the five spiritual faculties, the four bases of mental power, the seven factors of enlightenment, in the Noble Eightfold Path, which the Noble Eightfold Path contains a lot of the other teachings like the Four Noble Truths, the Five Precepts, and others are integrated into the Eightfold Path. So this is what the Buddha considers to be the core and central teachings the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four bases of mental power, the five spiritual faculties, the five mental powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the noble eightfold path. These are all things that you will learn as part of the programs that I share in the group learning program, the Polycanon in English study group, all the books and audiobooks and videos and podcasts all the courses and retreats that i share over the course of this life i'm sharing these teachings to help you guys understand these and other teachings so that you can experience this mental state of enlightenment out of compassion for the world what questions do you guys have on this chapter you can put that into facebook youtube or zoom and i will help you to understand further any kind of clarifications that you might need related to this chapter. Let's see. We have a few questions here in YouTube. So when human mind looks like, I'm not sure what that, oh, ages, regardless when it's under spiritual learning progress, can be intellectually still extending? I think what you're asking there, Tomos, is while you're training the mind in the path to enlightenment, can you continue to build wisdom and knowledge? And the answer is yes. That's the whole goal of this path to enlightenment is to not believe any of these teachings, but to learn, reflect, and practice them so that then you independently verify the truth, get to wisdom, and this is what's going to actually propel you to enlightenment and allow you to actually experience enlightenment. Buddha said a lot of about ending rebirth however what is instead rebirth we are souls or ghosts what kind of existence is after death okay i think i understand what you might be sharing here asking here if you experience enlightenment in this life and then you experience final enlightenment there's death then you're no longer going to experience rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. As an enlightened being, you will no longer experience existence in the cycle of rebirth ever again. But what happens next is an undeclared teaching. The Buddha never declares what will or will not happen once somebody attains enlightenment and dies. This is an undeclared teaching. If you don't get to enlightenment in this life, then there's going to be continuous rebirth either in the hell realm the animal realm afflicted spirits human realm or heavenly realm and what realm you're born into is going to be based on your karma of cause and effect or action and result based on the condition of your mind at the time of death that is what will determine what realm you're reborn into and the condition of your mind is based on the decisions that you've made throughout this life so by training your mind getting closer and closer to enlightenment if you get to enlightenment there's no longer existence but what happens next is an undeclared teaching if you're training your mind this life and you fall short of enlightenment well the training in the condition of your mind is improved in this life so you should have an improved rebirth that's what you'll experience as part of this life the Buddha never taught whether there is a soul or isn't a soul. This isn't part of his actual teachings. He left this as an undeclared teaching as well. From one rebirth to the next rebirth, it's not instantaneous. You're not going to experience instantaneous rebirth. So what happens in that in-between time is that the individual is, they're not experiencing existence. Essentially, the mind is waiting for rebirth. That the consciousness has not yet been reborn if you think about this existence as thomas as cardboard box a and then if you're going to experience a rebirth there's cardboard box b these two cardboard boxes are completely different they're different shape different color different texture but when there's death of cardboard box a when thomas dies the cravings and residual memories from this mind of thomas get moved into this new mind. And this new consciousness now needs to wait for rebirth. It needs to be wait to be reborn into hell, the animal realm, afflicted spirits, human realm or heavenly realm. It's not an instantaneous rebirth. And this is why once you are reborn into existence, some people experience the residual memories of their previous lives because the cravings and residual memories move into this new mind. And now you're experiencing those residual memories from previous lives. Looks like we might also have a question here in Zoom. The question is, was the Buddha having contact with the heavenly beings? The answer is yes. During his lifetime, there's multiple depictions of him being in certain places and heavenly beings coming and lighting up the sky and then asking him questions to be able to learn and practice the teachings. A Buddha is going to teach human beings lots and lots and lots of human beings and countless of them are going to get to enlightenment during their lifetime but they're also helping heavenly beings as well heavenly beings need to be able to learn and practice to be able to get to enlightenment hell beings animals and afflicted spirits they can't get to enlightenment they need to be reborn into a new existence in order to get to enlightenment so it's only in the human realm and heavenly realm that these beings can get to enlightenment as i mentioned humans tend to have built-in motivation Heavenly beings tend to not be motivated. They tend to be fairly complacent, but some of them are motivated to get to enlightenment. So they're going to learn from a Buddha during the lifetime of a Buddha. They can actually learn his teachings. So they're going to come in direct contact with the Buddha. And there's depictions of this in the Pali Canon of him teaching humans, of course, but then also heavenly beings as well. So it looks like these are all the questions that we have. And we'll go ahead and move on to the next chapter. The next chapter, as you see here, I wrote a lot, uh, is chapter 46, and it looks like, hold on, you've opened up your microphone, so you must be interested to read this, yeah?
3: One who sees the teachings sees me. Enough, Vakali. Why do you want to see this foul body? One who sees the teachings sees me. One who sees me sees the teachings. For in seeing the teachings, Vakali, one sees me. And in seeing me, one sees the teachings. Monks, even if a monk taking hold of my outer robe were to follow right behind me, placing his feet in my footsteps, yet if he were to be craving for sensual pleasures, strong in his passions, evil in mind, corrupt in his decision making, his mindfulness muddled, unalert, uncentered, his mind scattered and his sense base uncontrolled. Then he would be far from me, and I from him. Why is that? Because he does not see the teachings. Not seeing the teachings, he does not see me. But even if a monk were to live 100 inches away, yet if he were to have him, if he were to have no craving for sensual objects, were not strong in his passions not evil in mind and corrupt in his decision-making, his mindfulness established, alert, centered, his mind at singleness, and his sense basis well restrained. Then he would be near to me and I to him. Why is that? Because he sees the teachings. Seeing the teachings, he sees
1: me. All right. Thank you, kaudon So here, towards the end of the Buddha's life, and he was letting people know that he was going to die, there were some students who weren't enlightened that were actually pleading with him and begging him not to die because they didn't understand that that's not something that is possible because he's impermanent, he has to die. So the Buddha's saying, all right, enough, you know, because these people are like pleading and begging with him to not die. And he says, you know, why do you need to see this foul body? Why is it that you need to see this foul body? Because if you've learned the teachings and you understand them, you wouldn't need this body. The teachings are well understood. He spent 45 years sharing the teachings and every two weeks people were chanting the teachings word for word, they were, committing them to memory through chanting every two weeks. So the teachings have been well discussed and they've been well thought about and well delivered during the lifetime of the Buddha. So the Buddha's like, you don't need to see this foul body because you have the teachings. Learn the teachings. That's what you need. He's already done his work over those 45 years to share the teachings. And he says, one who sees the teaching sees me. What he means by this is that if you've learned the teachings deeply enough and you understand them deeply enough, then you'll see the Buddha all around you. Because the Buddha shared the teachings in such a way that they're independently verifiable. He's sharing the natural laws of existence. He's explaining to you what's happening in the world. So if you understand these natural laws, like the universal truth of impermanence, if you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a crack in the sidewalk, ah, that's impermanence. That's the teaching of the Buddha. You see the teachings, you see me. You know the Buddha existed because you see his teachings. Or if you see somebody getting angry or frustrated because they don't get what they want, this is craving, desire, attachment. The mind is discontent. So if you understand the teachings well enough, then you see the Buddha everywhere around you because his teachings are explaining everything that's going on in the world around you. So that's what he's explaining in this first line of one who sees the teachings sees me. One who sees me sees the teachings. What he's explaining here is that during his lifetime, he was a living, breathing, walking example of his teachings. A Buddha and or a teacher, they share their teachings through discourses. Nowadays we use books and videos and podcasts and we have classes and courses and retreats that students can learn through discourses and through learning the teachings but one of the best ways to actually teach students is through your own practice so as a teacher as a buddha if you're practicing right intention right speech right action for example and all these other teachings that the buddha shared your students can see that so a buddha isn't going to teach right speech and then practice wrong speech. That's not what a Buddha does. They're gonna teach right speech and they're gonna practice right speech because they understand that one of the ways that their students actually learn is not just in the discourses. They actually learn through observing their teacher as a role model. So a Buddha is going to be practicing the teachings as a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. So one who sees me sees the teachings. You're gonna see him practicing the teachings regularly. Here he explains that one who essentially is just walking in his footsteps, holding on to his robe, but they have this craving for central pleasures. They have strong passions. They're evil in their mind. They're corrupt in their decision-making. Their mindfulness is muddled. They don't have this awareness of mind. Their mind is unalert, uncentered. Their mind is scattered. Their sense bases are uncontrolled, meaning they can't restrain their mind he's saying in this situation this person is very far from me because they don't understand my teachings they're not practicing the teachings closely so this person is very far from me but for somebody who lives really far away from the buddha if they don't have craving for sensual objects, if they're not strong in their passions, if they're not evil in mind, if they're uncorrupt in their decision-making, if they have mindfulness well-established, they have this awareness of mind, this alertness, this centeredness, this singleness of mind where they're practicing concentration, and they're able to restrain their sense-bases, then this person is close to enlightenment, and the is saying, okay, you're close to me, Even you live far away, you're close to me because you would need to deeply understand the teachings in order to get to this point that he's describing here. And because one sees the teachings, they see the Buddha. So this is why you don't need to have the Buddha in existence today. You can learn, reflect, and practice his teachings, independently verify them, train your mind, see discontentedness gradually diminishing, and as you see that, you'll know that the Buddha existed. Sometimes some of these people that are long in the past, like 2000, 2500 years ago, we might question of whether did they really truly exist or not. Well, if you learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha and you see the condition of your mind gradually improving you'll know with 100% certainty that the Buddha absolutely existed because his teachings are explaining to you exactly what you're experiencing in this life and you see the condition of your mind improving based on his teachings. So therefore, you know that he existed with 100% certainty. You'll have no doubt whatsoever and you'll have full confidence in the Buddha, his teachings, the community, your teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom. Let's see, it looks like Thomas has another question here. Oh, actually, I've already answered that one. Sorry, Thomas. All right, so I don't see any in Facebook, and I don't see any in Zoom either. So let's go ahead and move on to the next chapter, which will be chapter 47. Would someone like to read this one? I read it. Okay, go ahead.
4: One who resides in the teachings here among learns the teachings, the discourses mixed, mixed prose and verse. Explanations verses, inspired spoken phrases, quotations, both stories, amazing accounts and questions and answers. But it does not pass the they so so lonely in learning the teachings. He does not neglect seclusion, but devotes himself to internal serenity of mind. It is in this way that a monk is one who resides in the teachings. Thus, monk, I have taught the one absorbed in learning, the one absorbed in communication, the one absorbed in recitation, the one absorbed in thought, and the one who resides in the teachings. Whatever should be done, monks by a compassionate teacher out of compassion for his disciples, Aspiring for their welfare that I have done for you. These are the feet of trees, monks. These are empty hearts. Meditate, monks. Do not be complacent. Taste you, Lest, least, least. Taste you, regret it later. This is my
1: instruction to you. All right. Thank you, Laxmi. Appreciate you reading that. Very good. Yeah. Um, so, he,
4: uh,
1: no, you did fine. You did fine. This is wonderful. I'm sure English is a second language for you. So this is part of helping you learn is by reading. So thank you yeah. for taking the time to do that. It helps to build your skills. So here the Buddha is describing that one who learns the teachings and he explains all the different teachings because during his lifetime they would need to learn these orally and then commit them to memory and then they would be reciting them orally through chanting every two weeks. This requires a lot of work to learn and practice the teachings. So learning the teachings is important. And he's saying somebody who learns doesn't just pass the day solely by learning. You need to learn in order to get to enlightenment, but you shouldn't only be learning. You should also be practicing the teachings as well. And that's what the Buddha directs you to hear in this next part is he's saying you're not solely just learning the teachings intellectually, but you're practicing them too in terms of meditating and all the other aspects that you might need in order to practice the teachings. So you couldn't just read a book and get to enlightenment. You would need to learn about things like right intention, right speech, right action, learn about meditation and things like this, and then actually do those things where you're actually practicing right intention, right speech, right action, where you're actually practicing meditation. That's where the real transformation of the mind is occurring. It's not just the intellectual learning that is improving the condition of the mind. It's actually practicing the teachings. And then after one has learned and then they might communicate the teachings, and then one might recite the teachings during the lifetime of the Buddha, although we don't do that very much nowadays because it's not required that we do that. And then one would then be absorbed in thought, be able to understand the teachings and bring the teachings up into the mind. So one is residing in the teachings, who is learning, Who is communicating, who's reciting the teachings, the one who's thinking about the teachings. The Buddha describes this as one who's residing in the teachings. But then one needs to practice the teachings, and that's what he gets to here in the next part. He says, whatever should be done, monks, by a compassionate teacher out of compassion for his disciples, aspiring for their welfare, I have done for you meaning that everything that the Buddha did from the point of his enlightenment until he died was out of compassion for his students. A Buddha isn't wanting anything from their students. They're not expecting anything from their students. They're not putting demands on their students. A Buddha already is content. A Buddha is already peaceful, a Buddha is already joyful. They don't want anything from other people. They've already created a life where their mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The only reason why a Buddha chooses to share their teachings is out of compassion for their students. The concern for this misfortune. that other people have because of experiencing discontentedness. They're experiencing this misfortune because they don't understand the teachings that lead to enlightenment. So a Buddha aspiring for the welfare of their students is going to share the teachings for the rest of their life, helping as many people as possible to get to the enlightened mental state. And the Buddha then basically directs his students to meditate. These are the feet of trees. Monks, these are empty huts. What he's basically saying here is he's recommending for people to meditate at the foot of trees or in empty huts, because that's where the Buddha meditated during his lifetime. Nowadays, you can still do that, but there's not necessarily the requirement to do this. During the lifetime of the Buddha, this was a primary place that people would meditate. But nowadays, we might meditate in our bedroom, we might meditate at a temple, we might meditate at a park, we might go to a cave, we might go to a lot of different places and meditate. But these are the places where the Buddha meditated during his lifetime, is at the foot of trees or in empty huts. And then he's explaining not to be complacent or you will regret it later. When your mind is angry and feeling guilt and shame and boredom or fears and loneliness, you're going to regret having not meditated. So the Buddha never pushes or forces his students to learn and practice. He doesn't guilt, shame, and fear people into learning and practicing. His whole goal is to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear as part of the path to enlightenment. So he wouldn't use guilt, shame, and fear in order to motivate people to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear. It's not possible to do that, and he wouldn't force or control or push people to be able to learn his teachings. But here he's just encouraging his students, meditate monks, do not be complacent lest you'll regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So this is the only time where you'll see the Buddha really kind of you know, encouraging students to really be sure they're dedicated to their practice. And he talks about dedication and diligence at other times in his teachings, because that's what you need in order to get to enlightenment. But here, he's actually really encouraging them to be sure that they actually meditate, because just learning the teachings, which is what he talks about at the beginning, Just learning the teachings themselves isn't going to produce enlightenment. You need to come to classes, you need to read books, you need to get help with your teacher and talk about the teachings, yes, that's how you learn them. But then you need to move them into practice and this is where the real transformation of the mind occurs. So let me know what questions you guys have on this by putting that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom and I'll be sure to help you with any questions that you might have. Here's Thomas asking a question. How can useful Buddhist teachings for persons who work full time and have family, how his teachings are realistic for them? Okay, so the teachings of the Buddha are explaining to you why your mind is experiencing discontentedness. He's explaining to you how to eliminate that discontentedness. He's helping you to understand how to live in more harmonious ways amongst all people, both personally and professionally. With a lack of the wisdom of the teachings of the Buddha and without the training of the mind, you would lack the ability to live harmoniously in your personal and professional relationships and you would struggle in life. So his teachings, while He's addressing the monks because those are the people who were learning with him most closely. He also taught household practitioners too. And there were people who got to enlightenment as a household practitioner. So when you see the Buddha saying monks, 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 you should think of that as students, 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 because his teachings are just as applicable for ordained practitioners as they are for household practitioners. And the household practitioners can use all of his teachings to create an improvement to the condition of the mind and an improvement to the condition of their life. And this is what's going to lead to their enlightenment and improved relationships in their life. Looks like we have a question here from Jeffrey. So the things I do learning, meditating, dialogue with other practicing practitioners, I can use them in my daily life. Yes, as you're learning the teachings and you're reflecting on them to independently verify them, you should then move them into practice. That's where you're gonna actually experience the results. If all you were doing was meditating, you would never get to enlightenment. It's not possible to meditate your way to enlightenment. It's not possible to just read a book and get to enlightenment. You would need to learn with a teacher using the resources that a teacher has. You would need to meditate. That's part of your practice, but that's not the only part of your practice. The Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment, and meditation is only one aspect of that path. So essentially about 12% of the path to enlightenment if you do the math. So there's right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So meditation is part of right concentration. But you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment by only practicing one step of the Eightfold Path. You would need to practice all those steps. So if you're meditating and then you go out in the world and you speak harsh and aggressive and hostile with people, you're not going to get to enlightenment. So the meditation is there to train the mind to arise certain wholesome qualities and to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities. But then as you go out into the world, there's all these other aspects of the Eightfold Path that you need to be practicing in order to train the mind to get to enlightenment. So this path to enlightenment, it's really like a full-time job. You're meditating two or three times a day, but you're also practicing all the other aspects of the path. So that's why I share this book series, 13 volumes, that are the words of the Buddha where you can learn the entire path to enlightenment and it's free for you. You can download it for free You can take those files and go print them, or you can order them on Amazon through a Kindle version or a printed version or even a hard copy. You can learn the teachings in the Buddha's own words, and that way you'd see what he did teach and what he didn't teach because he's the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment, and you would need to learn with the words of the Buddha in order to get to enlightenment. Without studying his words, you wouldn't actually be able to experience enlightenment. So his teachings are directly applicable to what you're doing in everyday life so that then you can gain this wisdom through independently verifying his teachings and then applying them in daily life. His teachings aren't based on belief your goal isn't to believe his teachings, but to learn them, reflect on them, to independently verify them, and then practice them. So you shouldn't believe what I say. You shouldn't believe what's in the books. You learn, reflect, and practice. And then as you bring your practice up more and more to the Eightfold Path, this is where you see the transformation of the mind because the pollutions of the mind are eliminated. And now you can practice as an enlightened being. Looks like we have another question here from someone else. You're welcome, Jeffrey. I see all your thank yous there. You're very welcome. How could monks remember the Buddha's teachings just by listening once? Well, you don't just listen once to the teachings of the Buddha and remember them. The Buddha taught in repetition. This is the way that you share an oral tradition, is you teach in repetition. So in the Pali Canon, it's 45 large volumes of books. They're very thick. They're about four to six inches thick. I've actually got one of them right here if you can tell through the camera how thick this book is it's a very very thick book and this is just one of the 45 books that are part of the Pali Canon. And if you read the Pali Canon, you're going to see this continuous repetition over and over and over again. This is how you disseminate a oral tradition. You speak with stories or similes because people tend to remember similes. So the Buddha used similes in order to illustrate his teachings because people will remember a story more than they will actual pure information then you do that in repetition you do that repeatedly and then the other thing you do to help people learn oral tradition is you create lists this is why we got the five precepts the eightfold path the seven factors of enlightenment the four noble truths all of these things are, are numbered because you'll remember lists more so than just pure information so by sharing teachings as a simile by doing it repetitively by creating lists then by people hearing that regularly they learn these teachings they reflect on them and they practice them through training the mind they now can commit those teachings to memory when the mind is polluted with the ten fetters then it's very challenging for the mind to have deep memory. That as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, you get more focus, you get more concentration, you get more clarity of mind and you get a deeper memory. So as people were getting closer and closer to enlightenment, they would have been committing the teachings to memory and been able to be more capable of remembering the teachings for a longer period of time. So it's done through repetition. That's how one actually commits the teachings to memory. And then as they're learning even just a little bit of them and they're practicing them, getting rid of the pollution of mind, the mind's becoming more optimized, more fine-tuned. They're gaining more memory and ability to remember the teachings for a longer period of time. So as the people were learning the teachings, he then had them every two weeks recite the teachings. This is how chanting started. So basically 26 times a year for 45 years, His students were coming together every two weeks to be able to recite the teachings word for word for word for word for word. So by the time he died, there were people who were enlightened. They had this deep memory. They had committed the teachings to memory, and then they were able to write them down shortly after his death and this is how we still have his teachings today. But these teachings have been affected by impermanence. Due to impermanence, there's been people that have inadvertently potentially adjusted his teachings or the translations might not necessarily be as accurate. So this is why you'd never believe the teachings of the Buddha. You learn them you reflect on them to independently verify them, and then you practice them and see the truth for yourself that they're working to improve the condition of your mind. And that's how you know you're learning the truth because you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing in the mind. Things that once arose anger in the mind as you train, that will diminish down to frustration, irritation, annoyance, Eventually, that same exact thing will occur and the mind will just be peaceful and joyful. There'll be no anger whatsoever. And this is how you know your mind's getting closer and closer to enlightenment because you see this gradual diminishing of discontentedness and you see more peace and more joy coming into the mind. You see more focus, concentration, clarity of mind and memory as these qualities are starting to improve as you're getting rid of more and more pollution in the mind. Let's see what else do we have here. I did not put daily meditations in practice, as you advise, and it seems like quite a big part of my free time is consumed by. Our Buddha teachings will eat me completely. I'm not 100% sure what you're sharing there, Thomas. Other than it sounds like you're not meditating yet regularly, and people need to build up their meditation practice. So be sure you stay committed to that. Be sure you stay diligent with that. If you're not meditating, you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment, but you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment with only meditation either. You should be meditating two or three times a day, and you like to build up to 30 minutes or more. But if you're at five or 10 minutes per session, that's fine. Wherever you start, That's where you start. So just gradually build up. The frequency is more important than the duration. So if you meditate once for 30 minutes, that's not as good as twice, for 15 minutes. So be sure that you get your frequency in where you're meditating two or three times a day. And whatever time you're meditating, that's fine. But then gradually over time, build that up more and more. I know you've only been studying with me for maybe two or three months. So you're in the process of building that up. And that's fine. Just gradually build up your practice slowly but surely. Let's see. Here's Jeffrey with another question. As a relatively new practitioner, will this study group take us through the entire polycanon? Thank you. The polycanon is very comprehensive. It's 45 volumes of books. So to be able to go through the entire poly Canon would probably take 10, maybe 20 years to be able to do that. Instead, what I have is I have this 13 book book series, which has consolidated the teachings of the poly Canon into manageable, digestible chunks. It will give you what you need to get to enlightenment with the group learning program which is volume one of this book series it takes seven months to learn that and then the Pali Canon and English study group, which is volumes two through 13, this is the consolidated version of the Pali Canon with the words of the Buddha, references back to the original source teachings in the Pali Canon, and then my reflections to help you better understand the teachings and how to actually implement these into your daily life. So over the course of these two programs, which in their totality would take you about two years to gradually learn, and most of the students who are learning with me are learning in those programs more than once so you're not going to get to enlightenment in two years but in that period of time you will have digested a significant amount of content to be able to understand the teachings of the buddha and you would like to do that gradually so what i suggest to students is that they start with volume one in the group learning program and they read about 10 or 15 minutes per day and gradually trickle the teachings in and then on sundays and Wednesdays. I'm sharing the teachings. And if you can't make a class for any reason, they're recorded in YouTube, in the podcast, or in Facebook as well. And then after you go through the group learning program, which is seven months, sometimes students will repeat that more than one time. And then some students will do the polycan in an English study group after that or those who have more time, they might actually do these two programs at the same time. So you can do that as well. So you would like to just gradually, slowly trickle these teachings in. It's not gonna be the entire polycanon because you don't need to know the entire polycanon because some of the teachings in the polycanon. Canon Are specifically for the monks. So what you're interested in is learning the discourses or the suttas and that's what I have in this consolidated book series that you can download, you can print, or you can get printed versions of them. Let's see, which volume are you working on today? I have downloaded volumes one, two, and three, thank you. Today we're finishing up volume two, chapters 41 through 51. So next week we're going to be in volume three, chapters one through 10. So you could be reading those this week, and then we're going to study them together next Saturday. And then that way you might have questions when you're coming into class. So we're going to do 10 chapters a week pretty much. But when we get to the end of the book, if there's a couple of extras or there are a couple few Less than we'll kind of do less than 10, but I will let you know each class what chapters we're going to read for next class. But this is also on a schedule. If you look online, you can go to bit.ly forward slash polycanon study group, and from there you'll be able to see the whole schedule. Let's see. Does David teaching get shortcuts sped up by eliminating unnecessary stuff? So There's no shortcuts. There's no way to shortcut your path to enlightenment. You're going to need to learn the entire path to enlightenment. So I don't try to hurry students up. I don't suggest that you try to hurry up and get to enlightenment, because if you are hurrying up to get to enlightenment, that means there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind. And you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment as long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, including craving, desire, attachment for enlightenment itself. So you pursue it as a goal as an objective or as an interest. You gradually work towards this goal, not trying to hurry, not trying to rush, but also not being indifferent and being complacent either. Neither of those two are in the middle. So with craving, desire, attachment, the mind's chasing after something, with indifference and complacency the mind is dull and lethargic so you'd like to bring the mind to the middle where you're gradually working towards this as a goal as an objective or an interest and there's no shortcuts you're going to need to learn and develop all the steps on the eightfold path which includes meditation which is sounds like where you're at right now thomas you need to build up your meditation practice okay so jeffrey says thank you i will pm you to see can focus sure yeah you can welcome to pm jeffrey and i can send you the links that you need to have access to the schedule and stuff these are all in our facebook group they're all on our website as well if you go to buddhadailywisdom.com under the online learning section you'll see the links for the group learning program for the and english study group for the books and all the other classes courses and retreats that i offer online and in person you're welcome to either message me or find those right online all right so it looks like that's all the questions we had in YouTube and Facebook and in zoom so we'll go ahead and move to the next chapter which is chapter 48 is there a student who would like to read this chapter
3: yes all right
1: go ahead Caldon one
3: who has attained Nibbana In this very life. Monk, if one teaches the teachings for the purpose of fading away of strong feelings towards aging and death, for its fading away and elimination, one is fit to be called a monk who is a speaker on the teachings. If one is practicing for the purpose of fading away of strong feelings towards aging and death, for its fading away and elimination, one is fit to be called a monk. Who is practicing in accordance with the teachings? If through fading away of strong feelings towards aging and death, through its fading away and elimination, one is liberated by non clinging, one is fit to be called a monk who has attained Nibbana enlightenment in this very life. In the case of birth, existence, clinging, craving, feeling, contact, the sixth sense basis name and form, consciousness, volitional formations, choices, decisions, and ignorance, unknowing of true reality. The discourses are identical, except for the reference to each of the conditions of dependent origination.
1: All right. Thank you, Kaudon. So here, the Buddha is explaining if somebody teaches the teachings for the purpose of fading away in strong feelings towards aging and death, This is the elimination of discontentedness. If someone's teaching to eliminate discontentedness in this fading away, then he's saying this is an individual who's considered to be a speaker on the teachings. If one is practicing for the purpose of fading away of strong feelings, the elimination of those strong feelings, then one is considered to be one who is practicing in accordance with the teachings. And then he says, if one has eliminated this strong feelings, one is liberated by non-clinging, meaning their mind is free. They're no longer experiencing discontentedness. They're no longer craving and clinging and holding on, so their mind is now liberated. He's saying that that person is one who has attained enlightenment or nibbana in this very life. And then he's referencing in this discourse, if you saw the long discourse, each individual aspect of dependent origination. In dependent origination, it's these 12 interlinking steps that explains exactly what leads to discontentedness and rebirth. In the Four Noble Truths, you're getting a snapshot of exactly what is leading to the cause of discontentedness. But this highest, most ultimate truth that the Buddha shares as dependent origination has 12 interlinking steps that shows you what's leading to discontentedness and continuous rebirth. We're going to study this in Volume 5, Chapter 14. So once we get there, we'll go through each one of these and you'll be able to understand these. It's in Volume 5 for a reason, because it's important to build up your practice to understanding what's in volume one and all of these other books before you lead up to volume five. So when we get to that in this program, we'll be discussing dependent origination, which is the ultimate truth, which is independently verifiable that you can see these 12 interlinking steps that lead to the discontentedness and continuous rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom and I will help you. Let's see, I'm not seeing any questions in Facebook or YouTube or Zoom, so let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 49. Is there someone who would like to read this one?
3: No, go ahead.
1: Okay, thanks, Caudon.
3: Three urgent tasks. Monks, there are these three urgent tasks of a farm. What three? First, the farmer swiftly... Slowly plows the field and swiftly, it thoroughly harrows it. Next, he swiftly sows seeds and then he swiftly irrigates and drains the field. These are the three urgent tasks of a farmer. This farmer has no psychic potency or spiritual mind by which he could command. Let my crops start growing today, let them mature tomorrow, let them be a grain the day after tomorrow but with the change of seasons there comes a time when the crops grow mature and be again and be a grain so two months there are these three urgent tasks of a monk what three the undertaking of the training in the higher virtuous behavior moral conduct the undertaking the undertaking of the training in the higher mind mental discipline and the undertaking of the training in the higher wisdom. These are the three urgent tasks of a monk. This monk has no psychic potency or spiritual mind by which he could command. Let my mind be liberated from the taints by not clinging to or tomorrow, or the day after tomorrow. Rather, as this monk trains in the higher virtuous behavior, moral conduct, the higher mind, mental discipline, and the higher wisdom. There comes an occasion when his mind is liberated from the taints by non-clinging.
1: All right. Thank you, Kardon. This is actually a really great simile for Thomas, what you were just asking in terms of questions. But let me explain what's going on here, and then I'll relate it to some of the questions Thomas was asking. So the Buddha oftentimes taught... With these stories or these similes and he oftentimes related them to farming life because during the lifetime of the buddha a lot of people were farmers so they understood farming nowadays we might relate certain stories to computers or social media or cars or things like this because that's what we tend to understand in our lifetime today but during the lifetime of the buddha people understood planting and animals and raising crops and Uh, raising animals and things like this because they were farmers. So there's these three tasks that a farmer understands, plowing and harrowing the field, planting the seeds, and irrigating or watering the field. These are three things that a farmer would understand that that's basically what's going to produce the crop or this production of what they can harvest. But in doing so, the farmer knows that they don't have the ability to plow the field, plant the field, and irrigate the field, and then you know force the, the plants to grow and produce the crop today or tomorrow or the day after. It's just not possible to force this crop to actually grow and bear grain. Instead, they need to ensure that they wait some time, and there's a certain amount of time that they mature, the seeds mature, they take care of the seeds, and gradually over time, the crop grows, it matures, and it bears grain. And the Buddha is saying the same exact thing in relationship to getting to enlightenment, that there's three things that you need to do. You need to train in the moral conduct, you need to train in the mental discipline, and you need to train in the higher wisdom. What he's pointing to here is the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is eight individual steps, but it's organized into three sections. So right view, right intention is the wisdom of the Eightfold Path. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood is the moral conduct section or the virtuous behavior of the Eightfold Path right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration is the mental discipline. So these are the three things that a person who is aspiring to attain enlightenment is going to train deeply in wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, namely the Eightfold Path. You're going to need to know that inside and out, backwards and forwards, and you're going to need to practice it. That's what's going to lead to enlightenment. So you're dialing in this Eightfold Path closer and closer to be able to understand it. And that's what volume one of this book series and the group learning program, I go through the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings very thoroughly in detail so that you can build up your practice around the Eightfold Path. And just like the farmer can't force the seeds to produce grain today, tomorrow, or the day after it's the same thing that you can't force yourself to very quickly get to enlightenment in a short period of time. That's not possible. That's not how it works. But as you gradually learn, you gradually practice, you'll see gradual progression and gradual results in the condition of the mind. You can't just will your way to enlightenment. There's no shortcuts to enlightenment. That's what the Buddha is essentially saying here. What questions you guys have on this chapter? Again, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see your questions there. All right, I'm not seeing any questions in any of those places, so we'll go ahead and move into the next chapter, which is Chapter 50. Is there someone who would like to read this chapter? Yes, can I
4: read?
1: I, I... Oh, go ahead, Call Kaldun, I'm sure you're fine with letting no, her I read. can Would you like okay. to read laxmi
4: Okay, yeah.
1: Okay, go for it.
4: Look, the the Tathagata recites compassionate towards all living beings. Venerable Star, doesn't the perfectly enlightenment one recites compassionate towards all living beings? Yes, it meant the Tathagatas resides compassionate towards all living beings. Then why is it venerable, sir, that the perfectly enlightened one teaches the teachings thoroughly to some, yet not so thoroughly to others? Well, well then Edman I will question you about this answers as you see fit. What do you think Edman? Suppose a farmer here had three fields the excellent one of middling quality and one in inferior rough and salty with bad ground. What do you think it meant? If that farmer aspires to sow seed, where would he sow it first? In the excellent field, in the field of meaty mid- tilling quality or in the field that was inferior, the one that was tough, salty, with bad ground. If venerable saw that farmer aspires to sow seed, he would sow it in the excellent field. Having sown seed there, he would next sow seed in the field of mending quality. Having sown seed there, he might or might not sow seed in the field that was inferior the one that was rough salty with bad ground for what reason because at least it can be used as food or fodder for the cattle it may just like the field that is excellent are the male and female or ordained practitioners to me i teach them the teachings that are good in the beginning good in the middle and good in the end with the right meaning and phrasing and even the holy life that is perfectly complete and pure for what reason because they reside with me as their island with me as their centre, with their as their protector with me as their refugee. Then headmen just like the film of milding quality are the male and female household practitioners to me. To them too I teach the teachings that are good in the beginning good in the middle and good in the end with the right meaning and phrasing
2: i reveal the holy life that is perfectly
4: complete and pure for what reason because they reside with me as their island as their center with me as their protector with me as their refugee they need men just like their feel that inferior, rough, salty, with bad ground are the ascetics Brahmins and wanderers of other communities to me. Yet to them too, I teach the teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle and good in the end with the right meaning and phrasing, I never, I live in the holy life that is perfectly complete and pure. For what reason? Because if they understand even a single sentence, that will lead to their welfare and peaceful, peacefulness for a long time.
1: Okay, thank you, Laxmi All right, so here, a individual a headman a village headman someone who's the leader of the village is asking the buddha you know why is it that you teach thoroughly to some students but not so thoroughly to others And the Buddha is using an example from farming, once again, to help them to understand. And oftentimes the way that one might teach is asking individual questions because then they're essentially teaching themselves. So he says, okay, if you're a farmer and you have a field that's of excellent quality, middle quality, and lower quality, where are you going to plant your seeds? Well, of course, the village headman says, in the field of excellent quality. And then from there, on. So the Buddha is explaining the same thing. He's saying, I teach all the teachings the same, essentially, to the ordained practitioners, the household practitioners, and these students from other communities, that he teaches them all the same. But, of course, a Buddha only has a limited amount of time, And the way that their teachings get continued into the world is by helping as many people to enlightenment as possible. So the students are dedicated and committed. He's going to spend more time and, you know, really share the teachings with them in a very thorough way, like the ordained practitioners. They had given up their household life and their worldly possessions to join him. So he, shared teachings with them in a very thorough and dedicated way. The household practitioners, they were also looking at the Buddha as being dedicated to him as their teacher, so he shared the teachings with them in a very dedicated and thorough way too. But these other students that are Brahmin and aesthetics from other communities, they weren't necessarily dedicated to learning with the Buddha. Sometimes we think that during the lifetime of a Buddha, everybody must have learned from the Buddha, but this isn't actually true. There's no physical characteristics that determine what a Buddha is or what a Buddha isn't. It's an individual's own mind that they know themselves that they are a Buddha, and as a Buddha is teaching, some of their students can oftentimes discover that that person is a Buddha. If they understand enough, they can figure it out. But the vast majority of the world during the lifetime of a Buddha isn't going to actually study with the Buddha because they're not necessarily going to know that he is a Buddha. So there were other people during the lifetime of the Buddha who were sharing teachings that claimed it was their teachings that were leading to enlightenment. And sometimes those students of other teachers came and learned with the Buddha as well. And he taught them the same teachings that he taught everybody else because he knew if they understood just a single sentence, it would be very good for their welfare and peacefulness For a very long time but essentially what the buddha is getting to here is he shares the teachings the same with everybody but these individual groups of people ordained practitioners and household practitioners they're going to be more dedicated to learning directly with the buddha so a teacher is going to be more dedicated to sharing the teachings with them and these other people who aren't really dedicated and diligent the buddha is not going to be as dedicated to necessarily sharing teachings with them although he's willing and able to share the teachings with them their ability to learn them and experience the benefit is going to be based on their own dedication and diligence. So a Buddha only has a limited amount of time to share teachings and they need to help as many people as possible get to enlightenment during their lifetime. That's the only thing that ensures the continuation of their teachings. So they're going to share their teachings more thoroughly with an individual who is more dedicated. And the Buddha describes the ordained practitioners as being the most dedicated during his lifetime where household practitioners weren't as dedicated because they were busy with other things. They had to run their household and run their life. So he was more focused on helping the ordained practitioners. In my life, I tend to teach a lot more household practitioners than I do ordained practitioners because they have their own teachers household practitioners who study with me, people who come to classes, people who ask questions, people who are members of the Facebook group, people who come to the temple. I'm sharing teachings with these people much more directly. But then there's also people who aren't really in those groups of people that they might just meet me at a restaurant, they might just kind of know that I'm sharing the teachings and ask me a few questions. I'm still gonna teach them the teachings, but there's not the same dedication on their part, so I know they're not gonna get the same level of learning and development on the path unless they come to classes regularly. They come to the temple or they become members of the Facebook group. So there's other people who are out there that will ask me a question here or there, and I will tend to guide them to a book or to a chapter in a book or a video or something like this. But if somebody's in the classes and they're regularly asking questions, I'm going to be much more thorough in sharing teachings with them because they're showing their dedication and their commitment to learning and growing. All right. Let me see what questions we might have here on this chapter. I see Thomas, you have a question there, but it's not about this chapter. So I'm going to save that for the end potentially and uh, i don't see any other questions so let's go to the last chapter for today it looks like caldon has logged out so he's not going to be able to read this one so maybe what i'll do is i'll just go ahead and read it because there's a lot of repetition here it's titled four observable benefits for one who learned the teachings by ear monks when one has learned the teachings by ear recited them verbally examined them with the mind and penetrated them well by view, four benefits are to be observed. What for? Here, a monk masters the teachings, discourses, mixed prose and verses, expositions, verses, inspired spoken phrases, quotations, birth stories, amazing accounts, and questions and answers. He has learned those teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. He passes away muddled in mind, and is reborn into a certain group of heavenly beings. There, the happy ones recite the passages of the teachings to him. The arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. This is the first benefit to be observed when one has learned the teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. So all of this is actually the same. So I'm going to end up just picking it up right here. This is where I'll start reading. There the happy ones do not recite passages of the teachings to him, but a monk with psychic potency who has attained mastery of mind teaches the teachings to the assembly of heavenly beings. It occurs to him This is the teachings and discipline in which I formerly lived the spiritual life. The arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. Suppose a man were skilled in the sound of a kettle drum while traveling along a highway. He might hear the sound of a kettle drum and would not be at all confused or uncertain about the sound. Rather, he would conclude that is the sound of a kettle drum. So too, a monk masters the teachings. The arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. This is the second benefit to be observed when one has followed the teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. Again, this is all the same, so I'm going to pick it up here. There, the happy ones do not recite passages of the teachings to him, nor does a monk with psychic potency who has attained mastery of mind teach the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings. However, a young heavenly being teaches the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings. It occurs to him, these are the teachings and discipline in which I formerly lived the spiritual life. The arising of his memory is sluggish but then that being quickly reaches distinction. Suppose a man were skilled in the sound of a conch while traveling along a highway. He might hear the sound of a conch and he would not be at all confused or uncertain about the sound. Rather, he would conclude that is the sound of a conch. So too, a monk masters the teachings. The arising of his memory is sluggish but then that being quickly reaches distinction. This is the third benefit to be observed when one has learned the teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. So here I'll pick it up again. There the happy ones do not recite passages of the teachings to him, nor does a monk with psychic potency who has attained mastery of mind teach the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings. Nor does a young heavenly being teach the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings. However, one being who has been spontaneously reborn reminds another who has been spontaneously reborn. Do you remember, dear sir? Do you remember where we formerly lived the spiritual life? The other says, I remember, dear sir, I remember. The arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. Suppose there were two friends who had played together in the mud. By chance, they would meet one another later in life. Then one friend would say to the other, Do you remember this friend? Do you remember that friend? And the other would say, I remember, friend, I remember. So too, a monk masters the teachings. The arising of his memory is sluggish. But then, that being quickly reaches distinction. This is the fourth benefit to be observed when one has learned the teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. These are the four benefits to be observed when one has learned the teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. Okay, let me help you understand what the Buddha is sharing here. This is a very long detailed teaching. What the Buddha was essentially describing is that if you learn the teachings in this life and you die, the mind is not enlightened and you die, then in your next life, you will remember what it is that you learned about these teachings to be able to help you in a future life. This is what he's essentially coming to. and the reason why he's sharing this is because the ultimate goal is to get to enlightenment in this life you would like to learn reflect and practice to the point where the mind's no longer experiencing discontentedness and you can experience enlightenment in this life but if you fall short of that for any reason and you need to experience rebirth any work that you do in this life is going to benefit you in that next life you'll be able to potentially get to enlightenment in that future life that's what he's talking about here when he says The arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. Reaching distinction is reaching to enlightenment, getting to enlightenment. So while your mind may be a little bit sluggish in this life to remember what it is that you studied in previous lives, you will be able to recall the memory of these teachings at some point in life, and this can occur People have experienced this. This is how we independently verify that this is true, that people have observed their past lives. They know that they've studied these teachings in their past life, and now it becomes very easy for them to learn and practice the teachings in this life. It's much more readily able to be able to practice the teachings in this life. If you find that when you're studying the teachings, that it they just make sense to you, then perhaps you may have studied these teachings in a previous life this is somewhat common for certain individuals so that's what the buddha is explaining here in this chapter is that any work that you do in this life it will benefit you in a future life should there need to be rebirth but the ultimate goal is to not experience rebirth get to enlightenment in this life and then you won't actually experience rebirth so let me know what questions you guys have by putting that into facebook youtube or zoom and i'll be sure to answer your questions for you there is a question here from thomas which isn't related to this chapter which i can help you with thomas it says many buddhist monks says about sangha which is the community regarding the the three jewels or the three gems and three roots what kind of active experience sangha follows your teachings thank you So the Sangha or the community, it isn't just the monks. This is one of the things that people sometimes misunderstand. They think that the Sangha is just the monks, the ordained practitioners. But the Sangha is all of the community. It's the ordained practitioners and the household practitioners. This is the Sangha or the community. When the Buddha taught about the community, he taught about all of the individuals, all the community. There is a ordained male and female practitioner community that is separate. The Buddha called it the bhikkhu and bhikkhani community. And there's a household practitioner community And then there's the Aryan Sangha, which is anybody who's attained one of the four stages of enlightenment. So the Sangha itself is the community, the entire community. But then there's actual individual sections of this community as well. So the overall community is learning and practicing the teachings. There's about 500 million people in the world that consider themselves to be practitioners of the Buddhist teachings. So when you see the Sangha or the community, you should think about everybody in their entirety. And for me, I'm sharing teachings with anybody who's interested in learning, whether they're ordained practitioners or household practitioners. Oftentimes ordained practitioners are learning with me more online through the replay or through books or things like this. They're not necessarily learning with me directly, although I have had some ordained practitioners in the past learn with me directly. They're not typically showing up to my classes and things like that, because here in Thailand, most of the ordained practitioners don't speak English. Uh, they're more than welcome to come to learn with me, but more likely than not, it's going to be household practitioners that are learning with me. And then online, there's certain ordained practitioners who are part of the community within the Facebook group that I lead. So they're learning through that as well. Looks like Mac is, is saying, thank you. You're welcome, Max. Nice to share the teachings with all of you guys. It looks like that's all the questions that have come in for today's class. So I'll just thank all of you guys for joining the class and deciding to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha and deciding that today is a day that you would like to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha. Because as you stay dedicated and committed to your practice of learning and practicing his teachings, and you're gradually training your mind you'll see this gradual improvement it's the very best thing you could ever do for yourself those close to you and all of humanity so we've just finished volume two of this book series next week we're going to be in volume three so you can read chapters one through ten this week just 10-15 minutes a day reading the words of the Buddha, the reflections that I share, and really reflecting on what it is that you've learned so that then when you come to class, you might actually have questions. But if at any point you aren't able to read the books, you can still come to class, but you're just going to get so much more benefit and so much more value out of reading before class because there you're going to see my full explanation of what I'm sharing to reflect on as part of the teachings of the Buddha. So you can be learning in the class, yes, but if you're reading either before and or after class, the thorough teachings that are in the book, you're gonna get much more benefit out of this program. And then tomorrow in the group learning program, I'm going to be covering Chapter 3 of Volume 1. Chapter 3 is titled Enlightenment. What is Enlightenment? So at the same exact time on Sundays at 9 p.m., I'm going to be sharing with you tomorrow 9 p.m. Thai time. And whatever time it is in your time zone, you can tune in live or listen to the replay exactly what enlightenment is and how to attain it so the more you understand what the goal is and what enlightenment is the more readily you'll be able to make your way to enlightenment where if you didn't understand what enlightenment is you wouldn't actually be able to attain it so i'm going to spend time tomorrow in class explaining what enlightenment is and then opening up to any questions that you might have and then of course on wednesday i'm doing meditation together with students so on wednesday we're doing the fourth part of our four-part series on loving-kindness meditation. So you're welcome to join that live and or listen to the replay if you like. So I'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time.
0: Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha.